Welcome to the Looking Ahead podcast, where we go inside the minds of tech leaders and luminaries to understand the futures they envision. Hosted by a head CTO, Eric Kaplan. Today's guest is HashiCorp CEO Dave McJanet. In this episode, Eric and Dave explore the importance of cloud infrastructure in the world of multi-cloud, Kubernetes place in the app management landscape, and the evolution of open source. Enjoy the episode. Great, I'm honored today to uh, welcome Dave McJanet, uh, CEO of HashiCorp. And Dave, uh, I'd like to maybe just start out by thanking you for joining. And maybe you could just give a little bit of background on yourself, uh, where you've been, how long you've been at Hashi, and, and we'll go from there. Great, yeah, I really appreciate the opportunity to uh, to talk shop a little bit. I, I um... I've been at HashiCorp for about four years. In fact, slightly after, but a bit more than four years. But uh, I've been broadly in this infrastructure market for a bit longer. I, uh, I, you know, I think the thing that I really find most interesting are infrastructure companies, uh, and I think sort of the, the enabling role that infrastructure plays has always been of interest to me. I, uh, you know, I spent time at Microsoft working on the server business, but I also uh, spent time at uh, a company called Spring Source, which became Pivotal. Uh, did a company called Hortonworks in the Hadoop market, uh, and then uh, I also spent time at GitHub. So I've been in the infrastructure market and the open source market for quite a while. It's one of those things that uh, has always appealed to me. So I want to I want to circle back on that open source uh, background in a little bit, but maybe you can start out and kind of you know HashiCorp, some stellar uh, products out there. Terraform started out in you know, Vagrant, Packer, Console, Vault. Um, really just a huge groundswell of, of momentum in the, in the community around infrastructure, uh, helping to build multi-cloud uh, environments. Uh, you know, a big play with HashiCorp is this cloud operating model that uh, you talk about. Maybe just give us a little bit of the vision, where you are today and where you uh, want to take the company. So we, we tend to think of the world in terms of market transitions and, and you know, what, it, what it appealed to me a few years ago, I actually got involved with Armand and Mitchell about a year and a half before I joined them directly is, is through this, this lens of transitions. And um, what was clear is the world was going from one way of running infrastructure to another way of running infrastructure, yeah. you know, on-prem predominantly very static world that we've all understood. You know, it's complicated to run on-prem infrastructure, but it's relatively well understood. We have networks and IP addresses and firewalls and all the rest. And, and you know, our view was that the, the the next platform is not just cloud, it's multi-cloud. It's basically, this world is inside the data center, this world is outside the data center. And obviously those two things need to connect to each other, but the fundamental platform transition is one of multi-cloud. You know, the world is not going to build all its net new applications on Amazon. You know, there will be Amazon and Azure and Google and Alibaba and others. So that was the core mission of the company is to say, let's contemplate how the world changes for all the participants in IT as they have to run cloud infrastructure across more than one cloud platform as opposed to uh, uh, just running on-prem. On you decompose that into the problem domain while well, there are ops people, security people, people, networking people and developers in, every, in IT, let's try and address the challenges of running that operating model uh, in, 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 each, in a multi-cloud sense. Uh, and that's how the products line up. You know, for the ops person, Terraform is the product that they predominantly use. It's you know, in the old world, you know, the, the model was I used to provision a virtual machine when someone needed something. Well, now I give an instruction set to 
platform, uh, Azure or Amazon or even vSphere. So the operating model for ops people is just very different. So that's more how we engaged just to say, okay, Terraform is used by ops people to, to address the challenges of running cloud. Vault um, is the reorientation of the world towards identity as the basis of security rather than IP address as the basis of security. Uh, and that addresses the challenge of running uh, applications in, in cloud. Uh, and actually the Twitter thing got, caught my attention yesterday. Uh, uh, and I'll come back to that in a second. And then the third thing is what happens in the world of networking as you go from on-prem to, to, to sort of outside the data center and a service name becomes much more important than IP address. You know, can this thing, can container talk to database? Well, well you know, let's create that routing rule, but it's done in terms of service name. So I think the, real, the world of ops security, networking and development basically get recast in the cloud world and we can align our product set against uh, those four personas. Great. What's the ecosystem in your mind like in terms of working with, you know, all the, as you said, networking companies, virtualization companies, database companies, um, and, you know, being this kind of in the middle of having to create providers or support providers. And um, is it welcome? Are you welcomed with open arms? Is it uh, something that you guys have better luck with some companies than others? Uh, and where, where do you feel like you guys are looking to plug holes in the provider ecosystem right now? So the, the way, to me, I actually spent uh, time in product development years ago in the world of middleware, and there's a lot of similarity. Um, that what we aspire to do is provide a consistency of approach across, say, like take provisioning as an example, infrastructure provisioning. We say, okay, well, I want you to be, be able to have a consistent approach, whether you're provisioning vSphere or whether you're provisioning uh, AWS. How that decomposes is basically an integration problem. It's like, Okay, well, Amazon's releasing new services every week. So how do I make sure that, you know, those are available in Terraform every week? What you end up doing is you end up creating essentially infrastructure middleware. Uh, and then the challenge is, is an integration challenge. And that's actually why I think these markets have to be addressed in open source. Because if you take Terraform, for example, there's Terraform core, which is the core CLI you use to interface to something to do an, do an instruction set. And then there's a, a provider for every environment you want to interface to, you know, akin to an adapter in the middleware sense. I would have to employ probably 1500 people to keep up to date with that market uh, of, of, you know, every time Amazon releases a new service, Azure releases a new service. So we decompose into those two categories. And so we play this unique role for the end user who wants a consistent way to provision infrastructure that's actually really beneficial to the infrastructure providers themselves. Like all we're trying to do is reduce the friction for someone provisioning Amazon compute or Azure compute. So we have a provider for every environment. Those providers all live in open source. When Amazon releases a new service, they update the Terraform provider for, uh, for Terraform to make sure that their, their users can use Terraform on that new service. So it actually is this really unique seam of a role that is really advantageous pages to the cloud providers because it reduces the friction for consumption. And I think that's, that's why this market exists. Um, we play the sort of enabling role between the end user and the infrastructure providers. And it's uniquely good for both parties uh, in that 
at the end of the day, Amazon's not trying to sell you software for provisioning. They're trying to sell you a compute. Right. What they want is they want you to get your applications running on Amazon as fast as possible and using as many of the cloud native services of Amazon as fast as right. possible so that it'll stay there. Uh, and what the end user wants is a consistent way to do that on Amazon because Amazon's really good at some stuff and Google because Google's really good at some stuff in a consistent way. So, you know, you play this or this, this sort of harmonizing role, which is both, you know, super valuable to the end user and the, and, and the, and, and the infrastructure provider themselves. Um, but also uniquely only doable in open source because, you know, like if VMware were to try to offer some of some of their value proposition, they'd have to hire 1500 more people uh, right. in the ecosystem. And this is where the community becomes so important as well. Yeah, I think on Ter Terraform's a great example. Uh, I was looking the other day, there are uh, 1300 or 1400 contributors to the Terraform project on GitHub. Yeah, I was and, just but, looking at that before the uh, before we got on here and GitHub. It's amazing. It's remarkable, and I think and I think as a as a data point, you know, we think of some things like Apache Spark being really big projects. Well, Apache Spark has about thirteen hundred contributors in its entire ecosystem, so it just sort of gives you a sense for the scale of it. And uh, and I think I think that's representative of the infrastructure layer. There tends to be standardization at the infrastructure layer, and I think you know we've been fortunate that our products have have played that role. Yeah, one of the things, you know, thinking about that cloud operating model going multi-cloud is I kind of break the problem down when I talk to customers. There's, you know, people, there's process, and then there's the technology. And, you know, many of us, I think, believe the technology is, is becoming or has become maybe the least of yeah. problems in terms of multi-cloud adoption. What are your thoughts? What are you seeing? I'm seeing still people as one of the biggest uh, issues in terms of, you know, adoption and education and moving faster and becoming more agile uh, in the enterprise, as well as letting go of some of those old processes in terms of how things are done in the legacy world and moving to more infrastructure as code and, and you know, blueprints for technology instead of and deployments instead of you know, one-offs uh, yep. being done manually. What are your thoughts? Are you seeing I think it's, similar? Yeah, I mean, I think I think uh, you kind of we tend to look through the lens of history and be sort of go, why why is it happening this way? Um, the the lens of platform transitions are helpful because you go, okay, well, why are people adopting cloud infrastructure? Broadly speaking, oh, that's and it's oh because they're building net new applications on cloud, right? right? It's the whole digital transformation push we all understand. So okay, great. All new applications by and large are being built on cloud. Not entirely, but you know the vast majority. But that's why the cloud providers are growing so fast. That's no different than when we went from sort of mainframe to client server. Like right? it's no different. We had this platform transition. There was a huge skills gap when you went from this world to the old to the to the next world. And it took a few years for that to catch up because you know, running client-server infrastructure is no less complicated than running right. uh, mainframe. It's just different. And I think that's kind of where we are as an industry, truthfully. I think the, the tooling for how, to, for how to run cloud infrastructure and the problem domain is actually super well understood. How do you do infrastructure operations? It's pretty, pretty well understood. How do you do security? Very well understood. Networking? Very well understood. But the population of people that know how to do that is smaller than the demand there is for it. And I think, when we went from mainframe to client server, you didn't have this massive pressure on digital transformation happening at the same time. So I think that's a bit of what we're feeling is, is, is 
it's really acute because not only is this an entirely new platform, you know, it dovetails with an enormous business pressure on digital transformation, which just means there's a lack of um, skill sets for how to do this. It's not unknowable, it's not unknown. We talk about it as a cloud operating model. It's actually really well, really well understood how you use identity as the basis of security, how you use service name as the basis of networking. Um, but the people skills gap is, 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 is absolutely the challenge. I think, you know, we, we see the world bifurcate in two. We, you know, many, of, many of the cloud native companies that uh, you might use, uh, whose products you might use every day, they all run on HashiCorp products today and the level of sophistication is extraordinary. Um, like we, there was a blog post published a couple of weeks ago from Cloudflare, which caught my attention where they, they you know, it wasn't, wasn't coordinated with us, but they published a blog that showed that Cloudflare uh, runs on console and Nomad, right? So literally 10%, yeah, 10% of the world's internet traffic runs through console. Well, that's interesting, or, you know, indirectly. And so you, the scale is just almost unthinkable of what people in the cloud native community are running. And then you go to, you go to a, uh, you know, traditional bank and they just don't have, they don't have the people inside the company that can do that. I think that's where the industry is, but I don't think it's surprising. I just think it's a function of time. Fast forward another couple of years and it'll catch up. It's just really acute right now. Yeah. I like to say, you know, at that bank, they have to sit there and uh, worry about keeping the lights on and turning the crank every day in terms of, you know, all the entrenched technology that's built up over decades and decades and the cloud native company doesn't have that baggage that they've, uh, they have to worry about, which is a major advantage. We, we actually have a real, like there's a legitimate challenge that we have, um, interestingly, is the catalyst for people adopting our products is typically for their cloud transition. So they'll establish a cloud team that says, hey, let's, let's get this business group running new applications on cloud with all the cloud native properties. And that is generally the entry point that we engage with customers commercially. I think we're, you know, you know, eight of the fortune 10 and hundreds of the global 2000 like commercially, but then paradoxically, the on-prem teams, the traditional teams start saying, Hey, wait a second. This idea of infrastructure as code is actually pretty helpful to my on-prem fleet. So can I just not use that to provision my vSphere as well? Well, of course you can. And then they go, well, the idea of low trust networks, that's probably a good idea internally. And so this stuff actually kind of works its way internally. So those legacy teams that we've seen, ironically, over the last three or four years are huge adopters of our tech. So they are actually trying to adopt a common operating model for their cloud fleet and increasingly their on-prem fleet for you know, things like security and, and provisioning as well. So. Uh, it kind of works its way in, interestingly. Yeah, and I think our experience with HashiCorp products has been, you know, you see products like uh, Vagrant out there, bits and pieces in the enterprise, you see Terraform being used. But what I've really seen the legacy uh, enterprise take a hold of is Vault. And, you know, that hits both legacy, you know, future cloud native, you know, applica mm -hmm. built applications, as well as, you know, obviously the security team. Um, so, you know, it, it's kind of a rallying point for a lot of people to get on the same page in terms of how they want to operate and look differently um, that touches a lot of different real estate, so to speak, within the enterprise. Yeah, so I, I think that's a really good illustration of how the model works too, and, and why the open source model works so well. It's been fascinating. 
So, you know, Vault, what Vault is fundamentally is a, an identity broker. So, you know, rather than my application making a request to the database and getting the data back, first I say, no, authenticate your identity before I give you that access. And then we, you know, you can, whether that's a container running on Amazon or a container running on-prem, it'll use the AWS identity or the, you know, the Active Directory identity, depending on which one it is. So that brokerage of identity, people, people say like, hey, I want to be able to apply that to Amazon, but wait a second, I have this SAP instance. Can I not? Like, that's a good idea. <laughs> so every request going to SAP, I actually want to broker through this identity and access management platform for all the machine-to-machine -machine connectivity that, that gets data in and out of SAP. And so lo and behold, someone says, oh, I've contributed the SAP HANA backend for Vault. Oh, I've contributed the Oracle database backend for Vault. And that's just how the open source model works. So, so now I can have this common experience, whether I'm you know, having machine-to-machine -machine connectivity on Amazon or machine-to-SAP connectivity or Oracle. And it kind of enables that bridging of the two worlds. And it's very unique to open source because, you know, we would probably not have built those integrations ourselves uh, because we're focused on the cloud use case. But the fact that someone can build that and contribute to it and make it available to everybody sort of speaks to the enormous um, kind of standardization role that we help to play across all these disparate technology types to allow you to have a common workflow for ad interface to them. It's been really fun to watch. Yeah, you guys are becoming the broker between all these systems, whether it's security or infrastructure, which is interesting. Um, Networking is the one I think I'm most acutely interested in because you can see that happening there too. Yeah, for sure. Well, maybe transitioning on the networking topic and, you know, talking about Kubernetes a little bit, um, you know, I'd say our client base is still trying to figure out how do I adopt Kubernetes, what are the use cases, uh, and piloting, you know, certain initiatives based on, you know, cloud-based orchestration uh, services and Amazon and Azure leveraging Kubernetes, uh, as well as on-premises uh, deployments. Uh, console, I think, is now the, is it the number one downloaded product in the portfolio? It, it, it always was. Actually, recently just got passed by, by Terraform, but up until very recently, uh, it's been our most popular product. So, so what are your thoughts right now on the Kubernetes ecosystem and your role in it and adoption within the enterprise? So, yeah, I always sort of decompose into, into the, the, the infrastructure market into software layers. Uh, I think, uh, to me, there's infrastructure, security networking and then there then there's a runtime platform on top yeah. i think that's how the market kind of fits fits together is I, people generally standardize on their way of infrastructure security and networking but there's just a variety of application types that they're going to run on top of it and so to me kubernetes is a runtime layer concern it's sort of you know I, years ago when we, when we did spring source uh we were focused on commoditizing the app server layer the, the, the J2E app server market. And I think it's analogous to that. So to me, Kubernetes is a runtime platform, kind of like an app server is a runtime platform. It's not an infrastructure concern or a security concern or a networking concern. It's actually the runtime layer. I think in practice, there's heterogeneity at the runtime layer because you have different application teams building different kinds of applications. So the fundamental thing that's shifted in our view is you're, you're now dropping this application artifact onto a cloud runtime not onto your on-prem world inside your data center with the clear network perimeter and all the things. And that's the disruptive part of cloud is my application is now being deployed to a low trust network with, you know, ephemeral infrastructure, et cetera. 
So whether it's a Kubernetes application or a Java application or a .NET application, I think that's that's the question. It has this common way to bring infrastructure underneath. So so Kubernetes has certainly got everyone's attention as a modern application platform where things will get deployed. And if you make the argument that hey, cloud's about net new application deployment, a big percentage of those applications will get deployed in containers and run in, and scheduled in Kubernetes. But I think like to me. The question is, Kubernetes the endpoint is where this market ends, or is it a step along the way? And I think at that runtime layer, if I sort of think about the journey to cloud as one to increasing ephemerality, um, you know, first I could provision deploy an app inside an app server inside of a VM <laughs> on, right. on, on that runtime platform, and then ultimately maybe that became containers and that gets deployed to Kubernetes. Well, the next thing is probably serverless. So there'll be some applications that are serverless. And that's not going to be Kubernetes. That's going to be a different kind of a runtime platform. And then actually, the, maybe the fourth type of application is an edge type application. Like maybe it's going to be deployed on my Comcast box or my Uber car or whatever it is. So I actually think there's not standardization at that layer. And I think Kubernetes is one of the things in our view that is really, really important. But it's one of the things that's really, really important. I think that's that's a slightly different view than maybe some of the other vendors in the market who say, no, no, the whole, whole world's going to replatform onto Kubernetes the same way it did on vSphere. And I just say, no, to me, it's a runtime layer thing. It's not an infrastructure thing. So um, therefore, for us, supporting Kubernetes is a critical P0 thing because it's how it's the application platform for many, many um, new, new applications. But it's no less important to us than serverless, and it's no less important to us than edge, and it's no less important to us than being able to have a common networking experience with your VM as well. So I think maybe that's a different view from maybe others in the market who's, who, you know, we're fundamentally betting on heterogeneity, not standardization. And do you see something in, to your earlier point, uh, you know, on the journey that you're excited about or you're looking out at for that edge use case? Uh, or others uh, beyond Kubernetes right now? Yeah, I, I, yeah, it's it's funny when you look at the market signals. I think we're all struggling a bit, truthfully, to, to, to parse the market signals now that we're all remote because we don't have the same in-person interaction the way we used yeah. to, sort of the serendipitous conversations. So yeah, I guess what, what we see, I think you see the cloud providers hyper-interested in serverless. Why? Because it's kind of the perfect thing for them. Uh, it's highly ephemeral you know, massive scale, uh, it, it actually, it's the best mapping of cost of compute to application consumption that they can provide. And that's ultimately what they want to do. So I think the cloud providers are keenly interested in serverless. And you see a lot of work from Amazon in particular, uh, who are pushing this agenda hard. So I think, I think that one's interesting to me. I think the, 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 you think about the problem domain that serverless introduces, it's actually even more profound than what Kubernetes introduces. So like when people start using Kubernetes, what you now have is a highly ephemeral application platform that comes and goes. And so immediately people recognize, oh my goodness, I have a security problem. Like, can this pod talk to this pod? I don't know, what's its identity? So it forces you to adopt something like Vault out of the gate. Right. It also introduces a networking problem is how do I connect this thing to this thing when they have different IP addresses that come and go all the time? It's actually a really hard problem. So it forces you to adopt something like console to basically do the networking between. So, so I think we're super excited by the fact that like Kubernetes introduces a lot of the problems that uh, Terraform Vault and console solve. But serverless does actually 
to even more extreme case, it's like, well, this, this thread spins up. Can it talk to this thing? I don't know. It requires you to use identity-based security and service-based networking because these things move around all the time. Right. So I think we're super excited about serverless as a thing because it, it, it sort of reinforces the problem domain of cloud and, and makes Terraform Vault and console even more applicable. But I think what we're now seeing is edge, which is just super surprising to me um, when you start to see how many of our customers are deploying applications on like, like they, on the edge. I think there are basically two categories to edge. There's like, there's like store endpoints, stores. Okay, like, hey, I'm Walmart. I need to be able to deploy applications to the edge. Uh, well, that's probably running on a, you know, a two CPU machine, like a tiny thing at the edge. But then there's the IoT use case, which is like my light bulb. To me, that's actually equally applicable for what we do as the cloud use case, because when this thing at the edge spins up, it's highly ephemeral, it comes and goes. So can it upload its data to this thing over here? I don't know, what's its identity? Right. <laughs> you know, how does it connect to it? I don't know, what's its service name and how do we do service-based networking? So I think, I think actually the big paradigm shift is like, infrastructure inside your data center to infrastructure outside your data center. And this is cloud and edge are part of the same market. And I think we're seeing signs, no question, that people are deploying our products at scale on the edge. Yeah, and I think, you know, all of these layers of abstraction are ultimately, uh, you know, while they're removing some number of problems, abstracting us from them, they're introducing others at the end of the day that uh, we will constantly be challenged with. Um, I think Kubernetes, Kubernetes is the perfect case of that. It's like, yeah. it's like when, when I was running an app server, I knew where it was. It was like, it's on that IP address behind that load balancer and I can, I can deploy an application artifact to it. And great, that's the basis of security. Now that's the basis of networking. You introduce Kubernetes and now you've got this highly ephemeral thing that's coming and going. It actually breaks everything related to networking and security and it forces you to actually uh, make this paradigm shift. And, you know, we have a big uh, practice and capability around ServiceNow and, you know, IT, uh, SM and, you know, IT operations management. And in that world, it's kind of like, well, how do I operate when everything's coming and going? And how do I do my changes and deployments? And, uh, you know, I think this is a problem from a back to the people process technology conversation that we're helping a lot of clients with because, they just don't know how to change, uh, you know, those legacy procedures and how they operate uh, in that new ephemeral world that you mentioned. Yeah, I'd say we, we talk about it as, you know, this is why like DevOps and cloud are kind of two sides of the same coin and, and you know, they, they are, they're so tied together. I think the like the transition is, is when you go to cloud, it's actually a different way of delivering up applications much more quickly because you're not having to have some spin up the infrastructure for you. And now you want to deploy more quickly and you want to change more quickly because you can. And so it's the shift from ITIL ticket based mechanism, which we're all built around to this sort of more like dynamic DevOps based thing. And it's, it's, that's sort of what we're alluding to on this, on the skills channel. Like these things are very well understood how to hook up my CI CD pipeline to something that drops my application onto Kubernetes with, networking and security solved is a very solved problem, but it's very far from running traditional infrastructure. And I think that's why the market is where it is. It's sort of in this in-between uh, chasm point. And then you lay on, you know, all the regulations that, you know, highly hospitals and banks and everyone has to 
live by uh, insurance companies and and that's when the the machine starts to slow down because they're not you know working in concert with one another um, i think but I, but I would say on that front though, i think again the that's why we we have this this kind of this you know obviously the talk about the shift left notion of all this stuff so many of our customers are highly highly regulated industries and they're like well, you know what, it's great that I can spin up that thing ephemerally, but that doesn't satisfy my auditor, so I can't right. do that. And, and I think the journey they go on is to say, well, actually codification of infrastructure is how you achieve compliance. So the only thing you get to spin up is this pre-approved template. And so um, it actually is hugely helpful for those, those regulated industries because it actually does make it a lot safer if the only thing that gets deployed is a terraform template that already has the configuration of your f5 uh, load balancer with all things in the right way there's actually far less risk but it's a learning curve for the auditors who, who go well that doesn't make sense to me but but in practice it, in my view it's actually far safer than what they're doing before manually yeah we just worked it's actually a joint uh, HashiCorp head client where uh, we worked with ENY, who was the auditor, to kind of walk through the steps of, you know, understanding that every time you deploy, this is what happens and this is only what happens. And that's an audit trail. That's something that can be stuck in the CMDB if necessary. Um, so it's a very, very, you know, once you sit down with someone who, you know, is not a technologist and walk them through the steps of what's happening and can explain it. Every time this is what they love it. And I think that's a huge win, but it takes some time and it doesn't happen overnight. Well, we've seen it, and I just don't wanna to, don't to pull too far from where, from where you wanna go, but the networking market's been fascinating to me because I can have unprompted from us, um, the networking community has all built Terraform providers for networking gear. So now, I, now what I can do is I can actually create a Terraform template and apply it to Cisco ACI or apply yeah. it to F5 or to Peloton Networks. And it's amazing because what you're now doing is you're actually creating the routing rules in code and just do it, it's immutable. It's like Terraform apply to that piece of networking gear now is configured this way. And then when someone deploys something new, you just update the module, Terraform apply again. And it's actually 100% repeatable, which is a kind of the infrastructure as code approach, but for networking, and even though we built Terraform initially for provisioning uh, cloud computing, it's equally applicable to networking. And now most companies that we go to use Terraform as a basis of their network automation. And it is a thousand times more repeatable than what they were doing before, where someone would open a ticket, someone would click around in a UI, update a routing rule, update it in Excel, and then the next time, hope they do the same thing again. Yeah. Um, maybe just before we end, I want to circle back to the open source conversation. And you know, you've been in the industry a long time. You've worked at many companies who have built from the ground up as open source business models. Just what are your thoughts on how you know the model has changed over time, and you know what challenges used to exist and you know may not exist anymore, and what new challenges are you faced with? You know, living in in, a, in an open source world uh, today. So yeah, the, the 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 world's changed a ton, and I actually think GitHub is the reason. Uh, so if you kind of if you kind of go back maybe a, a decade, 
the only way to get lots of people to work with you on a project was by contributing it to a software foundation. So if I had this idea that say perhaps I wanted to build a you know lightweight app server <laughs> right. uh, because I you know I didn't like the idea that we're paying a huge tax to BA and and uh, an IBM, I would create something like Tomcat. I would contribute it to the Apache Software Foundation, and I would say, "Hey, everybody, let's all of us work together to build a lightweight uh, app server." And um, so then it's in the governance of the Apache Software Foundation. I'll get like five different vendors to come and work with me, and that's been the model of the past. Like the power of that model is I can I, I could aggregate a lot of people to work with me. The kind of the weakness of that, that model is now anybody that had commit rights to Apache Tomcat can actually sell it because <laughs> right. then logically the vendor ecosystem goes, Hey, I'm IBM. I'll send, I'll sell you Tomcat. Uh, why? Because I employ the, a committer to Tomcat. And if there's a bug, I can fix it. So I can credibly sell it. And you saw that as the older model where you had big groups of basically foundation based people building software. And I think the downside number one is obviously the fact that it becomes really difficult to commercialize because if, if so many vendors can sell it price goes, to zero, it's really hard to build a sustainable enterprise that way. Number two, these found, the foundation model just is like, it's, it's a bit like a government. Uh, we saw that with OpenStack and others where everybody has an opinion. Now I got five vendors and they want to pull in the direction that they want. So you end up with something that is like not quite as tight as it would have otherwise been because of the, the, those dynamics. So it was hard to build businesses that were sustainable in that model for both the financial reason that anybody would, it was hard to monetize them. And, and number two, because the, the tech sort of splintered in a way you didn't like. Along comes GitHub and says, wait a second, all the developers in the world are on GitHub, so let's collaborate on GitHub. <laughs> and so now I can create an open source project on GitHub and I can get a thousand people to collaborate with me. I can put an open source license on it so anybody can fork it and it's, it's comfortable for everybody, but I can actually have much tighter control over the design of that project so it's just driven by a small group of people that really care about architectural purity and how this is gonna go in the long term. And I think that's the model that we run today. And so what we do with our products is we put them on GitHub, they're under Mozilla license. We have a thousand contributors to it, but we should be clear, like something like, like Terraform has a very small number of committers to the core and they all work for HashiCorp. And we are very deliberate about designing software that we control and it gives us this touch point to the market that um, both lets us build a world-class product, but also lets us be a long-term vendor partner to the market because, um, because it's, 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 it's a, in a sense, vendor-driven. vendor, vendor driven, uh, You know, IBM can't sell it to you and, and force me to compete. I think that's a little bit what we're seeing in the Kubernetes ecosystem. You know, I, you know Kubernetes is, is sort of built in the older model in the, in the Linux, in the, the CNCF. Uh, and now there, I think there are 60 distributions of Kubernetes. So, so everybody's out there clubbing each other to death saying, no, um, you buy my Kubernetes, buy my Kubernetes. And ultimately the only people that win are the big vendors with the most salespeople. And I think that's what's happened. So now you've got VMware and Red Hat, uh, by and large, sort of clubbing each other to death saying, no, no, my Kubernetes is better than their Kubernetes. It's the same product. Uh, and I think that's how the open source model is different. I think there's a much more you know, tight vendor uh, point of view around software because GitHub allows us to do that without contributing to a foundation. Great. Well, I appreciate you taking the time today. Uh, very uh, exciting stuff that you guys are working on and foundational to, I think, this uh, digital transformation. So uh, 
talk again soon. And thank you uh, for being here today. No, thank you. And we really appreciate the partnership. Uh, there are a lot of companies who are we're working with together, so I appreciate it. Thank Thanks, you. Dave. Thanks for listening to Looking Ahead, featuring Eric Kaplan. Looking Ahead is produced by AHEAD, experts in delivering enterprise cloud infrastructure, intelligent operations, and modern applications. We build platforms for digital business. Learn more at thinkahead.com.